I'm excited to dive into this book of the Bible. It's an incredible book. It's only four chapters long, 48 verses, and yet it's one of the most scrutinized books in all of Scripture. Uh, Many people have written it off as a myth, as a legend of folklore, and and we're not going to run from uh, the skepticism uh, attached to this book of the Bible. Rather, we're going to press into it. So if you're a doubter, if you're coming in this morning and you're going, I I don't know that I believe that a giant fish swallowed a human being um, a couple couple thousand years ago um, and and that uh, God was behind all of that. We're going to explore that together. Um, Some people have asked me uh, why the book of Jonah, and and there are really three reasons for that. Um, One of those would be uh, it gives us a heavy dose of God's character. Uh, So we get to see creation as the the stage upon which God displays his great sovereignty, his control over everything in the universe, as well as his grace and mercy towards sinners like you and me. So we get a heavy dose of God's character, number one. Number two, Jonah was a religious guy who grew up in a religious subculture. And so uh, the lines got blurred for him between moralism and the gospel, seeking to find uh, righteousness in self as opposed to um, the righteousness of Christ for us. And so many of us battle with that ourselves here in the Bible Belt subculture that we live in. We can relate to that. So we want to engage some of those uh, subtle nuances between the gospel and moralism. And then number three, um, it's meant to fan into flame a passion uh, for a city. Uh, God has a specific passion for a specific city, namely the city of Nineveh. And God has a deep passion and love for Southwest Atlanta today, just like he did for the city of Nineveh, uh, which we'll see uh, very shortly as we engage this book of the Bible. And so the hope is that thirdly, it would stir in you a passion for the mission of God, the mission that he's, he's called you to. Um, and, and it's very uh, interesting and unique in the context in which we live. You can look around and go, and there are churches everywhere, so everyone must be saved, Right. Um, And yet we live in the land of cultural Christianity where people uh, are checking boxes galore but don't truly know and love Jesus. And so uh, we want to engage that. We want to we want to pursue people just like we see God pursuing people in this particular book of the Bible. The book of Jonah is unlike any other prophetic book of the Bible. Uh, You only get eight prophetic words from Jonah's mouth himself. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He's a prophet, he's a mouthpiece of God, and yet most of the story is a narrative of Jonah's ministry rather than a collection of his his prophecies, really different. And because the book of Jonah is a narrative, you're gonna encounter some things along the way. You're going to encounter characters, and we're not talking static, boring characters, but rather changing, dynamic, complex characters undergoing a great deal of development throughout the course of these four brief chapters. You're gonna encounter a setting, or in this case, multiple settings, um, from the port in Joppa to the ship on the high seas to the bottom of the ocean where we find Jonah in chapter two uh, to the city of Nineveh and the the outside of the city where Jonah's looking in as the story comes to a close. You're going to encounter a plot with many twists and turns along the way. You're going to encounter conflict both internally within a character's mind and heart and also externally between characters, uh, between a character and nature, between a character and, and God himself. You're gonna encounter a climax, the place where the conflict comes to a point of, of crisis. And so as a result of this being a narrative, um, we, we need to consider how we are to approach this as we engage these characters along the way. I wanna make sure we understand how we're to go on this journey with Jonah and the others that we encounter. Jonah unquestionably affords us the opportunity to take a look at our own hearts, to look inward. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary says this, he says, The teaching of Jonah searches our hearts and consciences in a special way because it is the story of a man who was on the run from God. 
It traces not only the path of his journey, but it unravels the inner workings of his heart, his fears, motivations, and passing moods. That going back to last week, we get to look at the anti-gospels that Jonah is preaching to himself throughout the course of, of this story, and we get to see those same anti-gospels, the same sin and unbelief at work in our own hearts. And so the, this book is a cry, um, not so much to be like Jonah in these ways and to not be like Jonah in these other ways, but rather to see that we are Jonah, to see that you and I are one of the pagan sailors, that you and I are one of the Ninevites, that, that you are one or more of the characters in this particular book of the Bible. But here's the good news, where, where you fail, Jesus didn't fail. And, and Jesus is, is who we're gonna make much of through this story. You're gonna see um, Jesus tattooed all over the pages of this story. He's the hero of this story, just like every other story in the scriptures that all the scriptures from Genesis 1 to Revelation uh, point to Jesus as the hero. That the story of Jonah is not so much the story of a great fish as it is the story of a great God on the move. He's the God who relentlessly pursues and even this morning, he's pursuing you and me whether you see it or not, whether you know it or not. And so we're gonna venture out to sea for the next few weeks. I hope you're excited about that. Hopefully diving into a narrative like this will awaken our hearts as we uh, venture into 2016. Oftentimes uh, we find ourselves in, in a place where uh, we fall asleep spiritually and we need to be reminded that God's on the move and expect him to move, to anticipate him to move. And so we get an opportunity for that this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Jonah chapter one. We'll be in verses one through 16 this morning. We're gonna say verse 17 for next week along with chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Nearby, you can grab one of those Bibles, flip it open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible's yours as the church's gift to you. Christmas is over, but you can have a late Christmas gift from us for free. We will not hunt you down to get it back. It is yours. Let me pray. And we'll just jump in and we'll get to work because we have a little bit of ground to cover this morning. God, I pray that for the next four weeks as we dive into this book of the Bible, that you would bring people into our midst who need to see your character on display. Those who maybe believe in your grace and mercy but need a bigger dose of your sovereignty and providence in their lives. Those who who understand your sovereignty but need a bigger dose and understanding of your grace and mercy in their lives, uh, those who don't believe in your sovereignty or your grace and mercy who deeply need to have a collision with both. God, I pray that over the course of the next four weeks that uh, you would help us to see uh, the, the nuanced differences between the gospel and uh, religion, moralism at work in our hearts so that we might love the person and work of Jesus more. And I pray that you would ultimately stir in our hearts a love uh, for your mission, that you would draw us into this great mission uh, that, uh, that you have been a part of and have initiated since before the foundations of the world. Um, God, would you bring us into that and to help us see our part in that so that more people might know and love you. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your good son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, let's do this. Let's dive in and get to work. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came. These are the first words that we read in this book of the Bible. This is what we call the doctrine of divine revelation, God's revealing of himself, that without divine revelation, we'd be left with nothing more than human speculation, that if God doesn't reveal himself to us, we cannot know who he is. 
You can't decide to embark on a mission to understand God on your own initiative and expect to get anywhere. If you claim to know anything about God, it's because he's revealed himself to you in some sense, whether it be in the form of general revelation, i.e. nature, the cosmos, creation, or in the form of special revelation through his word, through his son, Jesus. Here we're told that God reveals himself uh, by opening his mouth and speaking, that the God of the Bible actually communicates to lowly human beings. We talked about this on Christmas Eve, the doctrine of the incarnation, that God stoops down, he condescends and takes on human flesh to enter our story on his divine initiative, that he's not the God of deism. Um, Deists believe that God wound up the clock when he created everything and just stepped back, disengaged from his creation. But Here, we're told that uh, the Bible actually refutes deism, that God opens his mouth. He speaks to his creation, to his creatures. And we're told that he chooses here to speak to a guy by the name of Jonah. Verse one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Who is Jonah? Well, a couple things that we know about Jonah. We don't know a lot, but we do know that he was an Old Testament prophet, a real person in human history. Um, For those who uh, come in as doubters, as skeptics, thinking that this is just a legend of folklore, we know that Jonah is the same guy mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, that during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jonah is the one who prophesied uh, the expansion of of Israel's reaches of land to its, its farthest extent. That in other words, his ministry was during one of the most prosperous seasons in Israel's history. He was, he was God's guy. God used Jonah in a mighty way. He had a good reputation as a prophet of God. And we're told that God said in verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come before me. Here's what we need to know about Nineveh going into this story. Um, Nineveh is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verse 11. Uh, Nineveh, interestingly, was founded by Noah's great-grandson. So that's how, how far back the history of Nineveh dates. Nineveh at one point was the capital of Assyria. Um, at this time, it's the center of a pagan uh, cult of fertility worship. So sex is their god. Also, the Ninevites used cruelty as a tool of psychological warfare. They tortured prisoners of war to death for sheer pleasure. Let me share this quote with you, just so you get an idea of the barbaric nature of the Ninevites. Um, this is a quote uh, by the king of Assyria, Asher Nasserpal, uh, regarding the treatment of a rebellious city by the Ninevites. And he says this, he says, I built a pillar over against his city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted. And I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. And I cut off the limbs of the officers of the royal officers who had rebelled. Many captives from among them I burned with fire and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers and from others I cut off their noses, ears and fingers. Of many I put out the eyes. He goes on to say, I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to posts, tree trunks, round about the city. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. Twenty men I captured alive, and I immured them in the wall of his palace. The rest of them, their warriors, I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. Sounds like ISIS, right? These are not a, a, a nice people. These are our barbaric people. Um, Ninevites would throw children into a furnace and make the parents watch. Ninevites would make a game out of skinning people alive and seeing who could keep someone alive the longest. Ninevites would bury men and women in the desert up to their necks in the sand and allow them to burn alive if the birds didn't come and get them first. That's the barbaric nature of the people that God 
is calling Jonah to go to. And on top of that, um, Nineveh was the greatest international threat uh, to Israel in the 50 years leading up to Jonah's calling. So it would be the equivalent to God calling you to go to Syria and to tell members of ISIS to quit sinning. Think about that. That's insane, right? But, but we know that Jonah was a successful, obedient prophet, so he did what God told him to do, right? Wrong, right? If you had read this story for the first time, you would expect that he's gonna go, and, and he's going to, as most prophets in the Old Testament do, he's gonna obey God, and God's gonna do a great work, and there's not gonna be any sort of bristling at God's calling on his life. But we see in verse three, that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. That Jonah is Moses on steroids. You, you want me to do what, God? Nah, I don't think so. And, and Jonah, instead of going east in the, the direction that God calls him, he goes west to south Spain. And, and here's the craziest part of it. Jonah doesn't say no because he's afraid of what the Ninevites might do to him. Jonah doesn't say no because he doesn't believe that ultimately God um, can't save these people even in the midst of his declaration of repentance. Rather, the reason Jonah says no is because he's a racist, self-righteous bigot who knows that God will save them if he goes. We find that out in chapter four, verses one and two. If you fast forward the story, Jonah does go to Nineveh and and he declares... um, a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. They respond and God relents from disaster. And we're told in verses one and two of chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew it, God. I knew if I went that you were gonna save the people that I really, at the end of the day, wish you would just destroy. How much better would the planet be without these barbarians on it? I knew if I went, I knew what you'd do. Why would God call a self-righteous racist bigot to a work like this? I mean, I think that's a, a pretty pressing question, don't you? I mean, why wouldn't God call... The, the man or woman who went on their first mission trip when they were uh, sixth grade, right, and, and went on the mission trip every year after that, had a perfect attendance, now works for the, the IMB, the International Mission Board, has raised good support, um, deeply cares about the city that he or she is going to, could lay out a, a ministry proposal for here's what I'm gonna do when I get there because I deeply care for these people, their lives, their futures, their eternity. Why not, why not call someone like that? Wouldn't that make more sense? I mean, in our subculture, we, we would probably do something like that, right? Here's why. Here's why I think God calls Jonah to expose the self-righteousness in Jonah's heart. Right? This is a work of sanctification in Jonah's life, this story at the end of the day. Um, remember, Jonah's a successful prophet of the Lord. Um, he, he's a rock star in Israel at this point. Everything he touches turns to gold. It would be unloving for God to allow Jonah to continue on in his ministry activities, his religious successes, and never experience God's grace in a way that transforms his heart to love people who aren't like him. That would be unloving of God to do that. Now, why does this matter for us? 
The answer is this, because every one of us battles with self-righteousness in our hearts to some extent. It comes in different shapes, different forms, different sizes, but we all struggle with building our identities on something other than Jesus. And so the question this morning at this point would be, what do you pride yourself on? What do you look down your nose at others for? Um, let, let, me, let me be transparent here for a second, um, because I... I truly do believe that vulnerability breeds vulnerability, and we, we want to breed that in our, in our church. That's one of our values. And so I had to wrestle with this question myself this week. Um, I, I met with a bunch of guys in our church planting network down in Macon, Georgia, um, and one of the topics of conversation was the idea of judgmentalism. And, and how do you see that in your own heart, in your own life? Because where that exists, there's some form of sin and unbelief as it pertains to the gospel in your life. And so I was wrestling with this question the morning that I was to head down to Macon, and I'll be honest with you, I struggled with it because I tend to err on the side of uh, when I see a person judging another person, I tend to wanna give the recipient the benefit of the doubt and, and to shake the other person and say, you don't know the full story here. You, you don't know what they've been through. You don't know uh, what's happened in their past that's maybe led them to say what, that, what they're saying or to do what they've done to you um, that causes you to look down your nose at them. I tend to give the benefit of the doubt more times than not. And so I was gonna go with that padded answer into the meeting. Hey guys, I, I don't know where I'm judgmental. I'm pretty sure I am somewhere, but I can't see it. And so this is the answer that I'm gonna give you for today. And if that changes, I'll let you know as God reveals to me where I'm blind. Here was God's grace to me. On the drive, I stopped to get a, a breakfast biscuit in a drive-thru, and in God's providence, I ended up in line behind a guy in a pickup truck with a rebel flag painted across his tailgate. And do and you wanna know the first thing that came to mind for me is this, the world would be much better if guys like this weren't a part of it. If we could just wipe these guys out of our subculture, this would be a better place to live. And, and immediately, um, God convicted me and reminded me how deeply I need to preach the gospel to myself because the reality is this, um, no one's gonna slap me on the wrist for the sin in my heart. Things like making ministry a mistress, working on and in the church too much. Nobody's gonna slap me on the wrist for working on a sermon a little longer than some would because most people don't know that there are still traces of a struggle with an approval root idol in my life and that sometimes I spend a little too much time on a sermon not because I'm just so deeply enthralled with the text that week but because I really want you to like me. Nobody's gonna slap me on the wrist for putting my identity and trust in Jesus plus theological astuteness. Jesus plus having a good theological grid. Jesus plus being able to argue someone into the ground when it comes to an apologetic conversation. Jesus plus having a good understanding of philosophy and Christian thought. Nobody's gonna slap me on the wrist for that. In fact, what's probably more likely to happen is for someone to say, we have a good pastor. He knows his Bible better than some. Uh, he really cares about theology. He spends time on his sermons. He's not lazy. And so here's what I had to do on the drive to make, and I had to preach the gospel to myself. I had to preach the reality that, Jamie, uh, you, you're in danger of ministry idolatry on any given day. You're in danger of making the church your mistress. You're in danger of continuing to feed a root idol of approval rather than excavate it and put it to death. 
you're in danger of trusting in your, your theological astuteness rather than Christ alone. And so I preached that to myself on the drive. I, I grabbed myself by the proverbial collar, going back to what we talked about last Sunday. If you weren't here, go listen to that sermon. You need to listen to that if you have any intention of connecting with us in 2016 and possibly beyond. But I had to grab myself by the proverbial collar and say, listen, self, you're a sinner in need of a savior, just like the guy you were behind. And you might be a slower progressive work of sanctification than he is. I'm Jonah. God revealed that to me this week. What does that look like for you in this story? Because the reality is God loves us too much to leave us where we are. He loves us too much to not rip away the things that we hide behind, the things that we put our identity in. And when he does, the reality is you're gonna respond in one of two ways, right? You're, you're either going to repent or you're going to run. And so Jonah chooses to run. And, and you know, you can read a story like this and go, well, I'd never do that, like, you know, I've been waiting for years for God to audibly speak to me. If he opened his mouth and audibly spoke to me, then, you know, I, I would respond. I would do whatever he said. If God chose to open his mouth and communicate something to me, I would respond better than Jonah. But the reality is that God has opened his mouth. And the very words that he had to say have been recorded in a book that we call the Bible. The word of the Lord came to Jonah and the word of the Lord has come to you and, and to me. And so we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, in what ways are we running from God? What does that look like for you? In what ways are you encountering the word of the Lord as you open the scriptures and, and going like Jonah? Nah, I don't, I don't think so. Like there's some things I'll respond to God as I open your word, but there are other things. They're just, I'm not gonna rip pages out of the Bible, but, but I'll nicely and kindly just move on to the next story, the next piece of truth. Um, or for some of us, in what ways are, are, are you simply ignoring the word of the Lord altogether, that God's going, I have things to say, and, and yet we're not engaging the scriptures at all. God loves us too much to leave us where we are, but we have to engage what he has to say to us if we're to wrestle with those things and to grow uh, in character as men and women of the Lord. Verse three, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is funny. We talk about this all the time. Like, you can't do that, right? You know that you can't play the cosmic game of hide and go seek with God. He sees behind every tree in his creation, behind every rock in the universe. He knows what's going on. He's omnipresent. One of my favorite scenes from Home Alone 2, at, at the very end of the movie, um, Kevin has been reunited with his family yet again in the Plaza Hotel, and they're all gathered together on Christmas Eve in the hotel. And uh, Kevin and Fuller, the bedwetter, have a conversation with each other. And, um, and Kevin says, Fuller, don't, don't get your hopes up. And Fuller says, huh? And Kevin says, I don't think Santa Claus visits hotels. And Fuller says, are, are you nuts? He's omnipresent. He goes everywhere, right? Santa may not be omnipresent, but God is omnipresent. God God, God is everywhere. You can't escape his presence. That's what David talks about in the Psalms when he says this in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and we're gonna find Jonah there next week, even there your hand shall lead me 
and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. That you can't hide from God. We, we try to, we run from, from God. We run from his word. We run from the community that he's put around us of men and women who love Jesus. It happens every time. Um, every time a professing Christian moves into a season of rebellion, he or she goes off the grid. It's impossible all of a sudden to grab a cup of coffee with that person. We, we run, we rebel, we hide. Um, that's our tendency, our nature to do that apart from God's grace. But the reality is that God's, God's there, he sees it all. And, and here's something important about verse three too. Um, there will always be a ship going to Tarshish. Okay? There will always, if you wanna run from God, there will always be a ship waiting for you. And that's where you have to be cautious as it pertains to God's will for your life. Jonah wanted to flee from Tarshish and, and it would have been very easy to go, for him to go, I'm at the docks, the boat's on time and I have the money to pay the fare. Huh, interesting. Uh, this must be the will of the Lord for me. And Christians are notorious for saying this, right? A door opens, so it must be something that, that God desires for me to, to walk through. But an open door, as we see in this story, is not always an obedient door. That, that we need the scriptures to inform our decisions. We need prayer to inform our decisions. We need the community that God has brought around us, rallied around us, known as the church, to inform our decisions. Jonah, Jonah had a great reputation. He prospered, and then he failed. We need God's grace daily. We must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. In verse four, you see what happens when, when you run from God. It says this, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. That God takes hold of the wind and hurls it upon the ocean right at one of his sons. And you go, wait, God, so the God of Christianity would hurl a storm, a hurricane, at one of his children. I'm not sure I want anything to do with that kind of God. That might be your response this morning, but here's the beauty of this. We, we need to remember that sometimes a hurricane is God's grace to us, right? It's your father chasing after you in the midst of rebellion. That one of the most terrifying things that God could do is to let you go to Tarshish. It's what we call the passive wrath of God, God giving man over to his sin. You see that in Romans chapter one, that if you're truly his child, he'll go so far as to hurl a hurricane at you to get you back. That's how much he loves you. It's what we call fatherly discipline. Proverbs 3.12 says it this way, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so we have to ask the question this morning, what, what storms are you facing in your life right now? What is that? What does that look like for you? And then to ask the follow-up question, is it possible that any of those storms are self-inflicted? And if so, how does it feel to know that you have a father who loves you so much that he would hurl a hurricane at you to get you back, just like he did his son Jonah? Moving on to verse five, we encounter my favorite guys in this book of the Bible, the salty sailors says this, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
Here, here you encounter these pagans. They're, they're super spiritual, but they're not Christians. Does that sound familiar in the world in which we live? We live in the world of Scientology meets Kabbalah meets New Ageism. Everyone's super spiritual, but not everyone professes that, that Jesus is the way. And the fascinating thing is that these pagan sailors are more religious than Jonah at this moment out on the high seas. They're praying to their plethora of gods. Meanwhile, Jonah is sleeping. This is super convicting to me. I found this in a commentary by Alexander McLaren. He says this. He says, the characters of godless men and of some among the heathen may well shame many a Christian. That oftentimes one of the great downfalls of the church is that while, um, while others are praying, being spiritual, the church is sleeping, apathetic toward God, apathetic toward his mission. It's the point of this story is to awaken us to the wonder of God's character and to the, the beauty of the mission that he's called us to. In these verses, we also get a picture of how uh, devastation oftentimes leads to, to salvation, that life is on the line here, that destruction is inevitable. It can't be escaped. Um, these these verses paint a great picture of how a lot of people are converted in the world that we live in. That some live in the, the land of the unknown God of agnosticism, right? You, it eats at them that they have no foundation to stand on that's certain. We see this in verse five. The mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. The cry becomes, whoever, whatever you are, if you can help, just, just come and do that, please. It reminds me of the scene some of you have probably never seen this movie. Some of you have. Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby. He's running around on the track thinking he's on fire and he starts screaming out, help me Jesus, help me Jewish God, help me Allah, help me Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off of me. Like anything that, that could possibly help. I'm just gonna cry out to any and all possible deities out there until one of them responds, right? People who fall into this category run to a million different things for help, the self-help sections of Barnes and Noble, uh, a number of world religions, New Ageism. Some people even run to the church, and that's a good thing. And we need to be cautious, us, us people who have been um, a part of the church for quite some time who profess to be Christians, because we're in danger of doing the same thing oftentimes. It's just that rather than running to uh, another world religion, we run to money as our God to save us. We run to family as our God to save us. And you just fill in uh, the list with whatever it is that, that could be, become an idol for you. Oftentimes good things that we make into God things that are no longer good for us, we do, we do the same thing as what we see these sailors doing just in a different way. That'd be one way that you see it play out, crying out to the the gods as an agnostic. The other way is to treat your life as one big self-salvation project. You see this in verse five as well. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. The, the cry becomes, if the gods aren't gonna respond, I'm gonna save myself. I'm gonna do what I need to do. Many of us live our lives this way um, as if the burden's on us to cause God to look favorably in our direction. We, we try to fight this constantly here as a church in, in the Bible Belt. Because the question begs to be answered, and I've brought this up a number of times, how do you know? How do you know if you've gotten there? How do you know if you bailed enough water in the proverbial ship of life? How do you know if you've tossed enough baggage in your life over the side so that God will now save you, keep your life afloat? How do you know? Nothing's working for these guys, not agnosticism, not pluralism, not moralism. And so verse seven tells us 
And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They're, they're still searching for an answer as to what, what got them in this predicament. And they, they come to find that it's Jonah's fault. Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. And, and you're meant to read this part of the story and go, seriously, bro? You fear the Lord. Jonah's confessional theology does not match his battleground theology in this moment. Again, going back to last week, there are oftentimes moments where we say we believe something, but when the battle for our soul ensues, there's a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we respond with in those moments when the battle ensues. Jonah's confessional theology is I fear the Lord. Jonah's battleground theology, not enough to take up my cross and go where he leads me. Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I fear the God who made the sea, so I made a beeline for the sea when I disobeyed him. What a dummy, right? Could anyone be dumber than Jonah? His confessional theology is my God made the sea. His battleground theology is I can get on a boat that's fast enough to outrun the one who made the sea. And we laugh at that and we're meant to laugh. It's satire to a degree but we do it all the time, don't we? We say one thing, but when the rubber meets the road, if we could stand outside of ourselves and look at ourselves in certain moments, we would, we would find it laughable, the, the level of disconnect. It's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves constantly. That when the battle for your soul ensues, doubt has a way of creating a wedge between what you say you believe and what you really believe when you're in that moment. Verse 11 and they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's a great word. He said to them, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. I know it's because of me. This is one of the, the moments where Jonah actually shines. He doesn't externalize sin. He doesn't say, you know, I, I grew up in this, this home where, you know, I had some real struggles. Um, he doesn't uh, look at, at his neighbor and go, you know, the guy that I've been friends with for the last decade, man, he's been saying some things and he really messed me up. Um, he, he doesn't say the problem's out there. It's culture's fault. That may contribute to the issue, but ultimately Jonah is acknowledging that the problem lies in here, that I'm the problem. I'm a sinner and I deeply need a savior. That that's what leads to conversion for the non-Christian. It's what leads to sanctification for the Christian acknowledging like the great hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, that I have a propensity to veer away from the gospel at any given moment. God, give me the grace that I need to live a life pleasing to you. I'm not under the assumption that I've ever arrived. And notice that our sin doesn't just affect us. This is sobering to me. He says, I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you, that as a husband and a father, my sin and its consequences can impact my wife and my two little girls. That's incredibly sobering. Now, as we start to wrap up here, let's, let's not give Jonah too much credit because while there is a confession 
there isn't repentance, right? All he has to do to see the storm stop is repent. You get that, right? He doesn't have to be hurled into the ocean for the storm to come to a halt. All he has to do is say, God, I'm sorry. I went west when you said go east. I'm ready to go east and to respond to your calling on my life. And the storm would have halted in a blink. So all he had to do is repent. But in his racism, in his bigotry, which hasn't been cleaned up at this point, he'd rather face God's judgment than God's commission on his life. That's still where Jonah is at this point in the story. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. These men are still doing everything they can to try to save themselves, but nothing's working. They finally realize at this point in verse 13 that they're done for, that they're bankrupt. That's where salvation happens. It comes when we realize that apart from a work of divine intervention, we're done for. That's where these men find themselves in verse 13. So that verse 14 tells us, therefore, they called out to the Lord. Finally, they call out to the true God, creator God. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. That here we see that sin requires a sacrifice of atonement. Hebrews 9.22 says it this way. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That these men come to terms with the fact that if Jonah, uh, that if they're gonna live, Jonah's got to die. This is a brilliant, beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel, right? I mentioned when we first started out this morning that all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation points to Jesus as the hero, Here you see a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus to save sinners from their sin. That we've all run from God in some sense. We all deserve to be hurled into the sea, to be destroyed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And yet Jesus was thrown into the sea for us. Make no mistake that um, God's showing his providence in verse 17, his sovereignty, when he, when he brings a great creature of the deep into the story in verse 17. But one of the reasons that God brings the great fish into this story as well is to make crystal clear that he's not going to allow us to mistake Jonah for Jesus. He's not going to allow us to confuse Jonah with the Messiah. Jonah is not gonna die for the sins of man. There's only one who will do that, and his name is Jesus. And he will come, and he will enter into our story and live the life that we cannot live and die the death that we deserve to die, that he would be hurled into the raging sea of God's wrath, that our sins would be put upon him, and he would be punished in our place, and that he would rise from death, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. And the reality is this, that that we can turn to unknown God and hope that they can save us when we cry out to them. We can do that. We can hope that they hear our pleas, that they respond favorably. Or we can try to row ourselves out of destruction, bailing water out of the boat of life, uh, treating our lives as a self-salvation project, hoping that we can reach the shore in our own strength. We can do, we can do either of those things. Or, or we can acknowledge that we're done for and look for divine intervention, believing by faith that the death of Jesus in our place ceases the raging of God's wrath on our behalf. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel, that if you're not a Christian, I would implore you to turn to Jesus and to trust in him by faith this morning. To the irreligious, you can know God. You don't have to live in the land of the unknown God of agnosticism anymore. And to the religious, you can stop rowing. 
How tiresome is it to try to row for your own salvation? You can set that aside. You don't have to impress God. Jesus did that for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. And then in verse 16, as we close this morning, we see the men respond to God's grace. We're told that the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That these brothers just got saved. Right, that's what, that's what just happened. And there's some baptismal water right there for them if they want it. That, that even as Jonah flees from the Lord, he's fulfilling God's plan of bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Isn't that crazy? That you cannot thwart the plans of God. And you'll see that more and more as we work our way through this story, that he's sovereign over everything. Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord in verse nine. Jonah spoke of a fear of the Lord. According to verse 16, these sailors felt fear of the Lord. There is a difference between saying you believe something with your lips, again, confessional theology, and believing it in the deep recesses of your heart when you find yourself in the battle for your own soul. And notice for the sailors, it's not, God, I promise to get my life on track if you'll stop this storm. I mean, how many of you guys, man, when I was a teenager, holy smokes, how many times did I pray? And it was usually over something dumb. God, man, if God, if you'll give me that girl, I will be in my Bible every day for the next however many months you want me. You know, it didn't even take suffering. It was just something I really wanted. And then all of a sudden, I, I had a way of inverting the way, the way it works, right? If, uh, I, I'll do this, God, if. What we see here, rather, is God, in light of you saving me, in light of you calming the waters, I'm compelled by your love and mercy to praise you with my life. Not because it earns me anything, not because it puts you in my debt. I could never put you in my debt. I just love you and want my life to be spent for your glory now. And so as we close this morning, and I hope that you'll stick around for the next few weeks as we continue to unfold this story. It's an it's a amazing story. But, but the question that we have to sit with as we uh, prepare to embark on the remainder of this adventure is this. Who are you in this story? Again, going back to what I said in the beginning, you, you are Jonah. You are one of the pagan sailors. You are one of the Ninevites. Who are you in this story? Are you Jonah? Are you running from God, from the very presence that you so desperately need? Um, the, the title of this sermon is Jonah's descent. And the reason for it is this. Um, there's a word in the Hebrew, uh, the word yarad, and it means to go down, to descend. And we see it four different times in the very beginning of this story. In chapter one, verse three, we're told that he went down to Joppa, Okay, so he went from uh, the city of God where the temple of God was, was fixed and he went down to the port of, of Joppa. He descended to that port. And then chapter one, verse three, he paid the fare and went down into the ship. And then we're told in chapter one, verse five, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. And then we'll see next week in chapter two, verse six, Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever to the bottom of the sea. That you see a descent taking place slowly but surely throughout the course of this story. It's literary brilliance. It's symbolic of the direction that Jonah's spiritual condition is moving. That's what you're meant to see here. And so the question begs to be answered, in what direction is your spiritual condition moving? If you, if you had to, um, to put a, a test on that, what would it look like? Are you on a descent from the presence of the Lord or, or are you moving toward intimacy with him? Some other questions that come out of chapter one, are people around you suffering the consequences of your sin? Do you see your sin um, seeping its way into the lives of others around you? 
Are you under the assumption that just because you walked with God yesterday, the same will be true of today? Or another way we could ask it, are you running off of yesterday's grace to you? Yesterday's time in the scriptures, yesterday's reminder of the gospel. Or maybe you're one of the sailors crying out to a plethora of, of unknown gods in the name of spirituality or, or the, the God of family or the God of money or the God of diet and exercise. Fill in the blank with, with whatever it might be as we embark on this new year, 2016. What does that look like? Are you moving from one thing to the next with no certainty as to whether or not the present thing is gonna work like these salty sailors? Are you on a mission of self-salvation? Assuming that, that God will save you because you're a good person. And again, if so, how do you know when you've rode hard enough? How do you know when you've bailed out enough water? How do you know when you've tossed enough baggage over the side that God will look upon you favorably and now keep you afloat? Are your efforts really getting you anywhere? Or have you come to a place where you realize that apart from God making a way where there is no way, you're done for? The gospel is the declaration that God has made a way and his name is Jesus. And for the next three weeks, we're gonna look at Jesus as the hero of this story. And my hope is that you really do get, get a dose of God's character on display, his, his great sovereignty and power, his, his great mercy and grace toward you, that uh, you're, you're able to more so see the, the subtleties between moralism and, and the gospel, that you're able to better preach the gospel to yourself in moments of unbelief and sin where anti-gospels emerge in your life, and that God would fuel a passion in you for his mission. There are many in this city and the surrounding areas that don't know Jesus, and the scary thing is a lot of them think they do. And they deeply need uh, us to go as instruments of God's redemption and grace to point them to the hero of not only this story, but all of the scripture and all of human history. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. Uh, we do that here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, as you come this morning, um, my hope is that uh, you would sit with the reality and beauty of the gospel and see it threaded through this story, that you would see the beauty and wonder that Jesus was hurled into the raging sea of God's wrath on your behalf, that there is now, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is no wrath to come for you if you are in Christ. Celebrate that this morning as you come and take the bread and dip it in the cup. And if you're not a Christian, my prayer for you is that, man, today would be the day that you turn to Jesus. Uh, not so that we get a notch in our belt, but so that uh, you experience freedom and joy and so that God gets the glory out of that. Maybe today's the first day that you take communion as a member of the family of God. And if that is you, tell somebody so that we can walk with you in that and explore that with you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.